Our hearing will come to order, and we want to thank you for being here today, and thank you for your service to our country, and um, we uh, look forward to your testimony. Uh, we thank our witness from the State Department and our panel of private witnesses uh, for being here today. We believe, and our European allies agree, that Ukraine should be free uh, to choose its future. Ukraine can, over time, be like its neighbor, Poland. Ukraine has a number of resources and educated and determined people. Most Ukrainians, as the Secretary knows well, want to be a part of a united, free, and prosperous Europe. If Ukraine wants to go in the right direction, if Ukraine wants the rule of law, it has to keep making real changes. And again, I know our Secretary is working hard towards that end. This cannot be done without political will on their part. The United States, for our part, needs a sustained bipartisan commitment to Ukraine for as long as necessary. Today we'll examine where the Minsk process and the Normandy group stand. Any progress on that front will only be worth something if it creates space for Ukraine to become a part of Europe. Ukrainians are wondering if the West will walk away. Candidly, um, um, I have concerns about our real commitments to Ukraine and, uh, and the length of time that that, that that a real commitment will be sustained. Um, and so we need to make sure uh, that that is not the case. Ukraine's leaders are enacting key reforms, but they will also be judged on how they address corruption. We and our allies will be judged on what we do now and over the next decade uh, to support Ukraine. Here in Congress, we're working on to authorize a long-term framework for Ukraine, but given all, that's, given all that's happening, our executive branch also needs to act to set the right course and not posture. Obviously, we can never accept Russia's land grabs through frozen conflicts and outright annexation. We need to be prepared to invest resources and put significant effort behind that. A reformed Ukrainian economy needs to be fully engaged with the West so that it can grow and withstand Russian pressure. We obviously need to be firm and reinforce Ukraine's economic and political reforms, including decentralization and punishing corruption. And we need to ensure that all Ukrainians, including Russian speakers, benefit from Ukraine's democratic future. We need to make sure that we're assisting and training and supporting Ukraine's military and security forces. And we need to do whatever is necessary to ensure NATO readiness in the Baltics and Europe east of Germany. We need our NATO allies, including Germany, Poland, United Kingdom, France, Canada, and others to also make real long-term commitment to work with us to see that Ukraine has a future tomorrow and that it's as secure as Poland's is today. And I just want to say one more time, uh, our, our friends in Europe, so many, so few of them, I'm sorry, so few of them are honoring their basic NATO commitments. Basic NATO commitments. I know the Secretary has pushed hard to change that. I know that our NATO Secretary General is pushing hard to change that, but, and uh, we continue to be, our nation, the uh, provider of security services. Europe continues to be the consumer of security services, and that dynamic has got to change. 
Um, I would like to recognize our distinguished ranking member for any opening comments that he would like to offer and thank him for his service. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for uh, convening this, uh, this hearing. Secretary Noon, it's always a pleasure to have you here and our distinguished uh, guests on the second panel. It's nice to have both of you here also. Uh, let me um, first make an observation as it relates to Ukraine. Ukraine has a, a dual challenge. It has the external threat, not threat, but external interference by Russia, uh, which has uh, affected not only its territorial integrity, but also its ability to advance um, as, a, as, as a strong, independent state. And then it has its internal challenges, a country that has been plagued for many, many years with weakness in democratic institutions and its susceptibility to the plague of corruption. Both need to be dealt with for Ukraine to be successful. Many of us have visited Ukraine on many occasions. I have. I've seen the people. I've been there during the different revolutions and seeing the, the will of the people. I've been to the Maiden and, and could sense the uh, frustration. And what I got from my visits is the people of Ukraine want a government that's honest, that gives them a fair break, that represents all the people. It's not so much whether it's affiliated with Europe or Russia, or it's more of whether you have an independent country that can make independent judgments and can represent all of its people. So our Ukraine strategy, has been uh, to try to make sure that we accomplish both objectives. And quite, quite frankly, I have supported a more aggressive approach than the administration on the defensive side. I thought we should have been providing more military equipment so that Ukraine could defend its borders more successfully than it's been able to defend its borders. Uh, and I understand the administration's been slower on that, mainly because of our coalition. But I do think we've paid a price uh, because of the porous borders between Ukraine and Russia, uh, particularly on the eastern part uh, and what has happened. Secondly, we need to aggressively work to establish uh, strong democratic institutions in, in Ukraine. And we have worked with the international community, and I'm interested in seeing um, where we are on that and what more can be done. Part of that is fighting corruption. You'll, I'm going to say this over and over again, fighting corruption. And I know the commitment of the president to fight corruption, but it's still a huge problem. And how much have we done uh, in order to make that possible? We've seen progress, as the chairman has pointed out. The association agreement with the EU is certainly a positive step forward. We've seen anti-corruption laws passed by their legislature, which is certainly a positive step. The question is how they're being implemented. And we've seen energy reform, which is a, a critical issue for Ukraine's future, but much work remains. Uh, the interaction of the oligarchs with the government and its impact on democratic reform is, is a matter that I hope we can get into some discussion about. The inability to remove corrupt officials still remain in Ukraine and what efforts are being made in order to remove corrupt, uh, particularly in the judicial branch of government. The humanitarian assistance is problematic in the territories that are not controlled by the government. Can we be more effective in providing a humanitarian need? And one last point I added as a result of this morning's business discussion, and that is, uh, Madam Secretary, I think 
if you had your full complement, including an assistant administrator for Europe, it would be helpful. That's not the fault of this committee. Tom Mealy has been li lingering on the floor of the United States Senate for 71 days, and I think we could help if we confirmed that position for you to give you the full complement at State Department. So, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to our witnesses, and I look forward to uh, how we can work together to strengthen uh, Ukraine's uh, ability to become a strong, independent state. Thank you. Our witness for the first panel is the Honorable Victoria Newland, Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs at the State Department. We thank you for being here. You've been here many times. I know that a summary of five minutes is probably what you want to do. Any written materials will be made part of the record without objection. Uh, with that, we'd like to recognize you and thank you for waiting to testify as you have. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of this committee for the opportunity to join you today and for the bipartisan spirit in which you have supported Ukraine in its difficult times and for the personal investment that so many of you have made in Ukraine's democratic European future. I've submitted a longer statement with more detail, particularly on the reform side, but I'll summarize here. Uh, as you noted uh, during the business meeting, this week we celebrate 25 years since Germany's reunification, the first major step on our collective bipartisan journey toward a Europe whole, free, and at peace, a goal of administrations of, of both parties. And today, that journey goes through Ukraine. In the six months since I last appeared before this committee, Ukraine can be proud of the progress that it's made. Last spring, the IMF approved a four-year, $17.5 billion economic support program for Ukraine, and disbursements have begun. The RADA has passed legislation to reform the energy and agriculture sectors, to devolve authority to the regions, and to create oversight structures to clean up corruption. Last month, Ukraine reached a landmark debt relief deal with its creditors, and the September 1st ceasefire in eastern Ukraine is largely holding. Heavy weapons are starting to be pulled back. While we welcome this progress, as you both mentioned, Ukraine still has a long, hard road to travel. Today, I want to talk about the status of the Minsk agreements, Ukraine's reform agenda, and the tough work ahead to cement Ukraine into a European future. We continue to believe that the Minsk package provides the best hope for the return of Ukrainian state sovereignty in its east. Yet, in the eight months since the February signing of the implementing agreement, eastern Ukraine has seen almost constant violence, continued weapons shipments from Russia, separatist filibustering at the negotiating table, and repeated Russian efforts to relitigate basic elements of Minsk. Yet, on September 1st, the guns largely fell silent. And on October 2nd, President Putin agreed to put a stop to the separatist threats to hold another round of fake elections. Instead, he committed to Presidents Poroshenko and Hollande and to Chancellor Merkel to withdraw heavy weapons, to allow full OSCE access all the way to Ukraine's border, and to negotiate modalities for real elections in the Donbass under Ukrainian law and monitored by ODIR. If these commitments are kept, Ukraine will once again have access to its own people and its territory in the East. And as President Obama did with President Putin in New York last week, we will also keep pushing for the return of all hostages, including Nadia Sevchenko and Alei Sentsov, who are being held in Russia, 
for full humanitarian access to Donbass for relief agencies, Ukrainian, Russian, international, international, uh, UN as well, and the removal of all foreign forces, weapons, and landmines as Minsk dictates. We understand why, after almost two years of violence, war, and lies, many Ukrainian patriots and some in the West doubt that Russia and its proxies will ever allow full implementation of Minsk. But Minsk remains a goal worth fighting for because the alternatives for Ukraine are bleak. At best, we'll have a frozen conflict in the Donbass. At worst, a return to the war that has already claimed too many lives. So we will keep supporting Ukraine as it does its part to implement Minsk, and we will keep pushing Russia and its proxies to demonstrate good faith. But we will judge Russia and the separatists not, not by their words, but by their actions. And we will work with the EU to keep sanctions in place until the Minsk agreements are fully implemented. And of course, Crimea sanctions must stay in place so long as the Kremlin imposes its will on that piece of Ukrainian land. While 7% of Ukrainian territory remains under threat, the other 93% is fighting a different battle to build a democracy that is closer to its people, an economy where what you know matters more than whom you know, and a society where law rules rather than corruption and greed. The reforms Ukraine has already enacted are impressive in their scope. Just a few examples. With US help, newly vetted and trained police officers are now patrolling the streets of Kyiv, Odessa, Lviv, and Kharkiv. A new National Anti-Corruption Bureau has been approved, and with the help of the IMF, the government is rebuilding its financial sector, closing insolvent banks, and strengthening protection of depositors' rights. These efforts are beginning to bear some fruit. The latest IMF forecasts released this week predict that Ukraine's economy could grow by 2% in 2016. And Ukraine's foreign reserves have already increased to 12.88 billion, up from a low of only 5.6 billion in February. With Congress's support, the United States has committed to provide over $548 million in assistance to Ukraine since the start of this crisis, plus the two $1 billion loan guarantees. With continued progress on economic reform and as conditions warrant, we will come back to work with you on a third loan guarantee later this winter. Because there can be no reform in Ukraine without security, $266 million of our US support has been in the security sector. This includes sending 130 Humvees, 150 thermal and night vision devices, over 300 secure radios, five explosive ordnance disposal robots, and 20 counter-mortar radars. Just last week, we notified Ukraine that two defensive, longer-range counter-artillery radars are on the way. And in November, we'll successfully complete our train and equip program for Ukraine's National Guard and begin training six battalions of Ukraine's Army and Special Forces. Ukraine has already put this training and equipment to good use. When combined Russian and separatist forces tried all summer to break Ukrainian lines, particularly at Marinka and at Staranahinsk, they were pushed back by Ukraine's increasingly capable military. As I said, though, much difficult work remains to reform the economy and the justice sector and to clean up endemic corruption. Next steps for the reform agenda should include the following kinds of things. 
a cleanup of the prosecutor general's office so that it begins to serve the Ukrainian people rather than ripping them off. Procurement and revenue management reform, particularly in the gas sector and the unbundling of services making way for the restructuring of NAFTA gas by June 2016. Transparent privatization of the many state-owned companies and cutting of red tape for investors. Constitutional amendments to reform the judicial sector, limit immunity and improve judicial ethics and standards. And continued recapitalization of the banking system. And of course, on October 25th, when local elections are held across Ukraine, good, free, fair elections. While Ukraine works through these tough challenges, the United States, Europe, and the international community must continue to keep faith with Ukraine. And we thank this committee for continuing to highlight Ukraine, making clear we stand with them. America's investment in Ukraine is about far more than protect protecting the free choice of a single European country. It's about protecting the rules-based system across Europe and around the world. It's about saying no to borders changed by force, to big countries intimidating their neighbors or demanding a sphere of influence. I thank this committee again for its bipartisan support and its commitment to the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine and to a Europe whole free and at peace. I'm delighted to take your questions. Well, we thank you very much for your testimony and uh, your continued efforts, uh, sometimes swimming upstream to, to make things happen in an appropriate way in Ukraine. And I'm going to, I had a lot to say over the last hour. I'm going to defer to uh, a ranking member. Well, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Secretary Newland, again, thank you for your leadership uh, on, on this area. I'm, I'm going to talk about one area. I'm going to talk about corruption. Uh, to me, if they cannot deal with this issue, their future is not going to be very bright. They, prior to the current revolution, the government was very corrupt at all levels. It's my understanding that very few people have been sent to jail for corruption in Ukraine. It's my understanding that there are still corrupt officials in the judicial branch of government that have not been rooted out. And I heard what you said about moving forward and dealing with these issues. If the impunity, impunity rate cannot be reduced, uh, it, it's not going to make much difference, these reforms. So how do we anticipate leveraging our involvement so that there is real progress made on dealing with uh, the uh, problems of corruption in Ukraine. Well, thank you, Ranking Member Cardin. We couldn't agree more. Uh, as I said in my opening, this is a central tenant of the work that we are doing with your support with the Ukrainian government. Uh, we have US and European advisors in the Prosecutor General's office helping uh, with the reforms to stress test all of the individuals there to insist uh, that those who are found to be corrupt are dismissed in the hiring and retraining of new personnel. And that has to happen not just at the federal level, but at every level in the districts. As I said in my testimony, there need to be constitutional amendments and then new legislation to uh, eliminate impunity in the judicial sector to ensure that the highest standards of ethics uh, apply. That has not been the case in Ukraine. The Ukrainian people, when you look at public opinion polls, uh, fighting corruption is their number one demand. Uh, and as you have said, there are too many instances, even in the last months, 
of cases not being made, of folks being put back on the street who shouldn't be. So this is a major, major focus of our effort. It's a major focus of international um, uh, attention on Ukraine. A lot of the support that you're giving us, uh, we are applying to this question. Every time we meet with senior Ukrainian leadership, we push on this, including when the Vice President saw Poroshen uh, President Poroshenko in New York. So, so let me make a suggestion. And it deals with transparency yeah. and matrix, where you can show progress being made or not made, that there is expectations. The United Nations is developing matrix right now for anti-corruption measures with the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goal number 16. I think Ukraine could be a case point of how the international community working with the government of Ukraine, which I think is sincere in trying to root out corruption. I think they are. Whether it's capable or not is another story. But developing achievable goals on reducing the impunity rates, on um, the expectations of an independent judiciary, of independent prosecutors, of funding these offices, of implementing the anti-corruption laws, uh, of transparency, those types of issues so that the public can gauge how well the government is meeting the goals set for fighting corruption, which then gives the government more power to make those, to implement that because they know the public's looking. It it's becomes, uh, and it helps the government in achieving these goals and fights some of the corruptive influences of the powerful who don't want this to change. We agree completely. The IMF agrees. In fact, some of the benchmarks that you're looking for are part and parcel of the IMF's program, and some of the things that the Ukrainians have already done are uh, because the international community is demanding it, the standing up of the Anti-Corruption Bureau, et cetera. Uh, the things that I mentioned in my testimony, which are outlined in more detail, are not only requirements of the IMF and the EU, they're also requirements that we put forward with regard to the loan guarantees that you've been so generous in helping us to, to attack. So we will continue to be on this. We're also working on things like e-governance, uh, customs reform, things that can squeeze out the ability for graft. But I would say that uh, given how endemic this has been in Ukraine, this is going to be a relatively long journey because you can change the tops of ministries, you have to change the entire culture uh, and not just at the uh, federal level but all through the localities. So this is, this is a major challenge for Ukraine and something that we agree we must stay on. I agree, it's because it's long term. I just urge you to set up the way that we can evaluate we're making progress. Not only that we can evaluate, not only IMF can evaluate, not only the international investors can determine, but also the people of Ukraine can know that there's progress being made. Without that, I'm afraid the stability in the country won't be there. Absolutely. And, you know, they're going to measure it by uh, when cops stop taking bribes, when you don't have to bribe your way into a hospital or mm -hmm. into a into a school and when cases are actually made, which such that they have the courage to come forward with cases because they know that they'll, uh, folks will be convicted. I agree. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shane. Thank you. Just to follow up on that um, line of questioning, and thank you for being here. Um, to what extent do you think the leadership and the RADA, um, the elected officials, understand the importance of addressing corruption? I would say that particularly in the broad reform coalition, 
uh, many of those RADA deputies, particularly those serving for the first time, got elected on a promise of trying to clean up the system. Uh, I think some of them are concerned about how difficult it is and that they need support, uh, particularly on the justice and prosecutorial side, and that this is um, a long-term project. One of the most popular programs we have, as you know, and I think you, you have seen some of them when you've traveled, is this investment that we've made in clean police. Uh, and as I mentioned in my testimony, they're now present in five cities in Ukraine, and every city in Ukraine is now asking for them. Uh, because uh, they are setting a new standard for serving the people rather than shaking down the people. So that's a small first step. Now we have to see that in the justice system. We have to see that in every ministry. We have to see that in daily life for Ukrainians. And in terms of the measures that Senator Cardin was talking about, is this something that the Commission on Corruption is actually looking at implementing as they're thinking about the challenge that they have? Uh, again, the, the um, Anti-Corruption Bureau is responsible for oversight in the ver of the various ministries and trying to root out the corrupt deep state in all of these ministries. That's only one piece of the puzzle. So this is, this is part of the challenge that almost every sector of the Ukrainian government has to be working on anti-corruption. So the judicial reforms, the prosecutorial reforms, e-governance, uh, what it feels like in the regions as well. So the um, Anti-Corruption Bureau will be one of the monitors, one of the stress testers, uh, but, we're, but every ministry is going to have to be involved and is going to have to uh, prove that it's making progress. You talked about Putin's commitments on the 2nd to um, hold elections as not with the separatists but with the rest of the country and to remove heavy heavy weapons. Have we seen any evidence yet? I mean, it's, been, it's only been a week, but have we seen any evidence that they're actually gonna move in that direction? The agreement that was finally achieved on uh, the second phase, the tanks and, and weapons under 100 millimeters, allows for the withdrawal in two phases, a northern phase and a southern phase. Uh, Ukraine wanted to do it that way to ensure that the most sensitive areas come second and that the OSCE can truly get in and monitor. Yeah. My understanding, and I checked this morning with our folks who work with the OSCE, is that we are starting to see on both sides, on the Ukrainian side and on the separatist Russian side, some pullback of heavy weapons, some increased access in that northern first segment. Uh, the question will be whether that remains the case, whether, whether access is allowed for the OSCE, because we've seen occasions where uh, this has been incomplete. And we did have uh, one violent incident uh, overnight, uh, so the, the sort of first break in the ceasefire in a, in a little bit. So we're watching very, very carefully. Okay. Um, one of the things that I think we'd probably all agree that has uh, helped with progress in Ukraine has not just been um, the will of the people of the country, which is obviously the most part important, but it's been support from the international community to try and help them as they're making these changes. And I wonder to what extent um, we feel like we are um, continuing to be in sync with um, President Hollande and, and Chancellor Merkel um, with respect to the progress on the Minsk II agreements and um, how, how willing do we think they are to continue with a sanctions regime if Russia doesn't respond as they've committed to? 
Uh, we had very good we've had very good coordination at, at every level going forward. Uh, we had superb coordination at the leader level, I would say, in New York when everybody was in the same place in advance of the October 2nd uh, Normandy meeting. And as you know, uh, President Obama met with President Putin um, in the, uh, early in that New York week. And I think um, you know one of the reasons why the Normandy meeting went better on October 2nd was because what uh, President Putin heard from President Obama, from Chancellor Merkel, and from President Hollande, particularly on canceling fake elections, on pulling back heavy weapons, and on having real elections in Ukraine and on hostages, was identical. So that's um, extremely important that we continue to work moving forward. The EU continues to join us in saying that there will not be sanctions relief until Minsk is fully implemented. That means until Ukraine is, uh, has sovereignty again over its eastern border. Um, given the shifting timelines of Minsk, uh, that's likely going to take more time than we originally anticipated. So that's probably going to mean we'll have to have some rollover next year. Um, we some of us just met with some Ukrainian parliamentarians who were here, and they were quite, um, seemed very um, anxious about what's going to happen with Minsk, too, not just with the elections, but um, also with withdrawal of weapons, and um, talked about how important it was for us to support and to push for the other provisions. Are there other provisions that we think um, Ukraine is particularly concerned about, other than those two, that we should be aware of and be pushing for here? Uh, as I mentioned in my opening, uh, the return of hostages, including those held by Russia, like Nadia uh, right. uh, Savchenko, uh, that's an extremely important humanitarian issue for Ukraine. Uh, the issue of the OSCE having access not just where weapons are being pulled back, but all the way to the border is an essential prerequisite to Ukraine itself having access, which you have to have before you can have an election. I think the concern also is that heavy weapons need not just to be pulled back, but Minsk ultimately calls for the full withdrawal of all foreign weapons and troops. So that needs to happen. Um, you know, it's, it is not surprising that uh, there is skepticism, as I said in my opening, among many Ukrainian patriots, given the seven months of non-implementation that we've had. Uh, we, with this ceasefire now, with the beginning of the pullback, uh, one, we need to use this time now to push for continued uh, demilitarization so that a real election can happen, because that's the only way for Ukraine to get its territory back. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Sorry. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, <clears throat> and uh, thank you, Madam Secretary. Look, I, I want to focus uh, on the reality. We had the, uh, the IMF managing director here in a private session with the members of the committee, and uh, there's one uh, statement, I think it's pretty open and, and public, that is pretty universal, which is that when you take 20% of a country's GDP, uh, uh, which is the eastern part of Ukraine, and when you are uh, ultimately in still or in war, 
for all intents and purposes. Uh, as is evidenced by your own statement that in the eight months since the February signing of the implementing agreement, Eastern Ukraine has seen almost constant violence all along the contact line, continued weapons shipments from Russia masquerading as humanitarian aid, uh, then it's very difficult to be able to uh, steady yourself and advance economically in a way that we want Ukraine to advance. So notwithstanding all the other elements of your testimony and questions that have been raised about focusing on corruption, which I'm all for, uh, and other uh, elements of uh, uh, economic reforms that uh, they have been, I think, pretty aggressive on and need to continue to move forward. It seems to me the central question uh, as the administration comes up for a, a new ask of assistance to Ukraine, as we look at the future of Ukraine as someone who has been very supportive uh, uh, on the committee, the question is, where are we headed with Russia? Because at the end of the day, you cannot continue to have 20% of GDP under assault. You can't continue to have new armaments being shipped into uh, Ukraine by Russia uh, and, and simply think that this isn't uh, the ultimate plan of President Putin is either to have by de facto or default uh, a a quasi-annexation of the eastern part of the country, or at least a leash that you can pull at any given time when uh, President Poroshenko and the Ukrainian people want to move westward. So uh, what are we going to do with Russia here? Because they've shown themselves, so they, they now think that military intervention, not only here, but in Syria, uh, serves their aims. So uh, what are we ready to do? Well, thank you, Senator Menendez. You know, uh, this is w one of the reasons why we focus so much on the Minsk agreements, because if these weapons can be pulled back from the line, if the ceasefire can hold as it has now for a month, you can start to have economic activity from the Donbass uh, benefit all of Ukraine. So just in the last couple of weeks, coal is beginning to flow out of the Donbass back into the rest of Ukraine so that they won't have to import as much coal as they did last year. If we can get the OSCE in in a real election, you can reintegrate the population, all those kinds I, of things. I don't want to interrupt you, except yeah. because I did read your testimony. I know some people don't read testimonies before. I read your testimony, so it's why I stepped outside and did something else knowing that I uh, had read your testimony. I have the whole section, if, if, uh, the commitments are kept. My concern is what if they are not kept? What are we ready to do? What do we think we should do in anticipation or in trying to ensure that the commitments are kept? Because for me, if there are no consequences for Russia not to keep uh, their commitments other than that which exists, there isn't necessarily a reason for them to, to pursue their commitments, at least in the way that we'd like to see, that we, you know, we have this one step forward, two steps back situation going on. So I'm trying to get a sense of what we're willing to do. For example, uh, the Russians went ahead and uh, uh, 
at the height of the Maidan protests, uh, extended a $3 billion bond to then President uh, Yanukovych in power to try to help him stay in power. Yanukovych fled the country with unknown millions, uh, but as far as I understand, the Ukrainian citizen still ends up with the debt. The terms of the bond are pretty exorbitant, should, and Russia could demand an immediate payment, which they haven't done. I acknowledge they haven't done, but they could. So it's an economic weapon at the end of the day. So, potentially. So should they pay a price with that issue? Should, should the international community suggest to them, if you don't go ahead and pursue uh, the elements of Minsk fully, that there is going to be a consequence as it relates to your bond? Because we're not necessarily going to, in essence, help the Ukrainians pay the Russian bond, right? Well, first, Senator, as I, as I said, and as you um, have, have uh, helped us to, to implement throughout this, the first uh, line with regard to pressure on Russia from Minsk is the sanctions that the US and the EU have in place and which will have to be rolled over if Minsk is not implemented by January 1st. Uh, those sanctions, we believe, are biting the Russian economy deeply. I can go through the figures if you'd like. We have also said that if there is a return to violence, if there is a new land grab, and we've worked with our European partners on this, there will be an increase in sanctions. I think that the, um, the message that we sent that if another round of fake elections were held, that would also draw uh, a conversation about more sanctions had an impact on uh, the decision to prevail on the separatists to cancel what would have been a bad scene. Uh, you are right that there is a $3 billion note coming, coming due for Ukraine uh, because Yanukovych took this $3 billion loan uh, as he was um, in his final months. My understanding is that uh, the Ukrainian government is now approaching the Russian government and that, that conversation may begin uh, in coming days at the Lima Bank Fund meeting to say we've now made uh, a debt relief deal with our private creditors. If you, Russia, are prepared to accept the same terms, then that would be acceptable to Ukraine. We'll see what Russia does in that circumstance. Wasn't uh, that offered and rejected already once? Uh, there has not been a formal conversation about it because the deal with the private creditors was only completed a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how Russia uh, deals there. Russia has said it wants to help Ukraine with its recovery. This would be one way that it could do so. If it doesn't accept those terms, then we'll have to uh, work with Ukraine on other, Chair, other options. I may one no. final comment, uh, and that is that, look, I hope that this all works out. But from my perspective, hope is not a national security strategy. Absolutely. So the question then becomes, what are we ready to do? And I... Uh, will say that if we wait for Minsk and it doesn't get fulfilled by Russia and then start thinking about what we're going to do uh, other than keep what we have and obviously keeping what we have uh, if they violate or don't and fulfill the Minsk agreement then it will uh, there'll be no reason for them to change course so uh, I hope that we are ready to go with uh, a series of other actions to ratchet up the consequence, even putting Syria aside for the moment, 
But just on this, because one of my concerns is that what is happening in Syria, for, the, for which I think Putin has a series of reasons, but not the primary, but a collateral reason is I've got you all paying attention over here, and when time comes, uh, we'll do what we want to do in Ukraine. So uh, I, I just hope that we are being proactive at the end of the day. If I may just say that we, we did, over the summer, do considerable work with the EU on what an increase in sanctions would look like if that were necessary. Thank you. If you would, um, share with us the sanctions relief that Russia will receive in the event they satisfactorily uh, implement Minsk II. Senator, we have, uh, Mr. Chairman, we've talked about a rollback of sanctions if Minsk is fully implemented. As I said in my testimony, there are certain sanctions that were applied for Crimea, about Crimea, those stay in place. Uh, there were other sanctions that were applied uh, in direct response to the violence in eastern Ukraine, uh, primarily the uh, sectoral sanctions, the banking sanctions. It would be those that we would look at rolling back should Minsk be fully implemented, meaning all weapons and foreign forces withdrawn, a real election and return of sovereignty of the border and hostages. So um, I know there's been some discussions with others about the $3, million, $3 billion bond payment, and I think what Senator Menendez may have been referring to is maybe those negotiations weren't between two real parties, and the former president left the country and was $3 billion the right number, if you will. Now the country uh, certainly is bound by that. So. I guess there's been some discussion about Russia would have huge amounts of war reparations, would they not, that they would owe Ukraine for what they did? And I'm just curious as to how people are thinking about ensuring that Ukraine, with their economy tanked, uh, with the illegal actions that Russia has taken, um, is there not going to be some type of compensation, if you will, to offset um, some of the uh, issues that Ukraine has gone through, or is that just going to be washed over? Well, I don't want to speak for the Ukrainian government and how it would pursue those reparations, but our understanding from our conversations with them is that they are working on uh, International Court of Justice cases. They are working on ICC cases on, with, which could apply in some of those cases, but um, I think we can prepare a separate briefing for you on what they're thinking if you're interested in that. With regard to, as I said, uh, the, the debt, uh, our understanding is that Ukraine will offer Russia the same uh, proposal that it, met, it had with its private creditors. Um, we'll see if Russia accepts that, and if it doesn't, we'll have to see where Ukraine wants to go thereafter. The, the recent discussions regarding the moving back of the elections until February and some of the demands that uh, have been placed on Ukraine have read as if uh, us and Europe have placed additional demands on Ukraine that were very much in Russia's favor. Um, and could you talk just a little bit about what those uh, additional demands on Ukraine have been relative to, to moving things back so that Mints possibly could be successful? Um, I, would, I would actually argue the, the opposite, that uh, what we've been doing with Ukraine is, in, is working with 
that country to ensure that it can make the case that it has met every single one of its Minsk obligations and thereby shining the spotlight on the non-implementation by Russia and the separatists. And it is because Russia and the separatists have not pulled back weapons, it's because they have not been serious at the political negotiating table that the timelines of Minsk are probably gonna have to be moved out. But as I said, that also means that sanctions will stay in place longer. So uh, it's, it's Russia that has, by not meeting the original Minsk timelines, uh, ensured that it stays under sanctions longer than was originally intended. Um, now, uh, in working with the Ukrainians to ensure that their record was completely unimpeachable on Minsk implementation, we did, along with our European partners, support uh, early work on the constitutional amendments on decentralization, which are good for the country nationally, but which include this uh, very difficult concession that Ukraine made at the Minsk table to codify in the Constitution special status for these territories in Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. This caused a huge reaction in, in the Parliament uh, when it was originally reviewed in, in August and again in September because a number of uh, Ukrainian legislators, probably you met some of them, felt that they shouldn't be forced to make those moves in advance of a real ceasefire, in advance of a real weapons pullback. They did, though. They did the statesmanlike thing. And now it'll be on Russia and the separatists to implement their portions. Mm -hmm. On the corruption front, um, you know, we've had some heard good reports about the police that you referred to. And certainly they're making significant efforts within the country, a country, let's face it, is at least 20 years behind the rest of Europe because of its inheritance from the Soviet Union, but also all the corruption that uh, uh, takes place within the country. Where are the, you know, we, uh, we understand the, you know, big power center, if you will, in, in Ukraine is the oligarchs. And it would seem to me that that would be, those would be a group of people that can help determine success and certainly help make it not happen. Can you talk to us a little bit about that evolution? Well, you're absolutely right, Chairman, that there is a 20, maybe longer year tradition in Ukraine of the biggest business folk, the oligarchs, having sweetheart deals with corrupt politicians. Uh, in the context of the IMF reform process, the Ukrainian government, both prime minister and president, sat down individually with each of the major power brokers and renegotiated some of the deals that they had had with Yanukovych so that they would be more transparent, so that these guys would be paying their taxes, so that the royalties owed to the state for uh, resources of the state were appropriate and at world market prices. So. Uh, and, and most of the major oligarchs were willing to sit down and cut those deals. A number of them are now paying their taxes, as I mentioned, that coal's now being delivered to Ukraine, et cetera. Uh, but there are a few that have either broken deals or are not paying their taxes or are using uh, ill-gotten gains to throw money around in the political uh, system. And the Ukrainian government is uh, now considering uh, what kind of legal action it can take about, against those people. And we are making clear, uh, as, we do, as the vice president has, as the president has in all of his statements, as the secretary has, and as I did at a conference in Ukraine, 
uh, that there should be zero tolerance for anybody who doesn't pay their taxes, for anybody who continues in this environment to rip off the people of Ukraine. Thank you. I don't, if there are additional questions, I'm, I'm glad for those to be asked. I would just uh, ask in closing, I know we have another panel, and thank you for being here. Are there additional things that you plan to be asking Congress to pursue relative to Ukraine? Are there things that we might do to provide even more uh, assistance to the administration and others as we deal with Ukraine? Uh, Chairman, the, the Congress has been extremely generous in fulfilling and sometimes over-fulfilling our, our requests, so we're very grateful for that. As I said in my testimony, if Ukraine stays on track, uh, we do anticipate uh, coming and asking you sometime this winter to support a third loan guarantee for Ukraine. The uh, conditions that we'll put on it in our negotiations with Ukraine will cover many of the issues we discussed here today primarily implementation of anti-corruption measures. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it would be helpful, uh, maybe not in a hearing, but for there to be a small briefing of some kind for us to fully understand the sanctions relief that is going to be taking place relative to Russia. And uh, I, I hope that we're not uh, sending signals to Russia that they can come into countries like this to stabilize countries like this, in many ways, get their wishes relative to how Eastern Ukraine is going to be governed and leave and, uh, and have all sanctions relieved. So I do hope we can, and we'll be following up to, to make sure we fully understand what is happening there. We thank you for your testimony and your service to our country. Thank, thank you. you, Chairman. Delighted to come brief. So we'll bring the uh, next panel up. We thank you for your patience. This panel will assist, consist of two witnesses. The first witness is Ambassador Paula J. Dobryhansky, the former Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs. Senior Fellow for the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard University, JFK Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to us. Our second witness will be Honorable Clifford G. Bond, the former ambassador to Bosnia and former U.S. Assistance Coordinator in Ukraine. Um, we thank you both for being here. I know you all have been before us before and certainly participated. Uh, if you could keep your comments to around five minutes and your written testimony without objection will be entered into the record, and with that, uh, in whichever order, order you feel like is best, uh, begin. Uh, ladies first, apparently. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chairman Corker and members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I, I appreciate the opportunity to testify before you today concerning why Ukraine's economic and political future matters and what should be done to secure it. This hearing is both timely and essential. While Russian airstrikes in Syria have properly caused the global community to focus on events playing out in the Middle East, attention, unfortunately, has been diverted from the grave situation in Ukraine. Russia continues its illegal occupation of Crimea 
and has embarked on a variety of measures designed to finalize its unlawful annexation of that portion of Ukraine's territory. Meanwhile, Russian-led aggression continues unabated in eastern Ukraine in violation of the Minsk ceasefire agreement. More than 6,400 Ukrainians have lost their lives, and more than 1.5 million have been displaced because of Russia's evasion. At the same time, Ukraine is fighting a war on its eastern front. The Kiev government seeks to revitalize its economy and secure needed Western aid. Their circumstances are extremely difficult as Moscow continues to destabilize Ukraine by adding to its war costs, keeping energy prices artificially high, resisting efforts at debt rescheduling or reduction, blocking Ukraine's trade, and inhibiting foreign investment there. Now, despite these major challenges, the Ukrainian government has achieved notable progress, partial debt rescheduling, improved tax collection, reduced government procurement, passage of anti-corruption laws, disclosure of assets of members of parliament, and curbed energy subsidies. Change and substantial reform in Ukraine will take time, but it is an effort which is in both Ukraine's interest and in our national security interest. Accordingly, it deserves our steadfast long-term support. Moscow's aggression against Ukraine is a component of Putin's strategic vision, which he has laid out openly in a series of speeches, not isolated misbehavior. Clearly understanding his desire to reserve, reverse the consequences of the Soviet Union's collapse and a rejection of the existing international system's legitimacy is central to understanding why long-term support for Ukraine is so crucial. The Atlantic Council has outlined the task at hand, secure Europe's east, support Ukraine. Their experts call for three basic steps, stop Putin through enhanced economic sanctions, support Ukraine through increased US economic assistance and military and humanitarian aid, and strengthen NATO. What happens in Ukraine is not just Europe's concerns. Both the United States and Europe have a stake in seeing a democratic, economically strong Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine starting in February 2014 in Crimea marks the first annexation of one European country's territory by another since World War II and threatens the normative order and geostrategic stability in Europe. Our values, institutions, and alliances have been directly challenged. Putin abrogated the 1994 Budapest Memorandum and other agreements, which have kept the peace in Europe for decades and buttress nuclear nonproliferation. To not act and leave Putin's aggression unchallenged sends a signal to other authoritarian regimes that they too can commit acts of aggression without consequences. The crisis in Ukraine has created a highly dangerous situation in Europe fraught with risks of further Russian aggression. There are several important implications to consider. First, this crisis underscores that the end of the Cold War, which saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and the creation of many European economic and security institutions, has not rendered Europe immune to new security and political challenges. Second, as the develops in Ukraine, developments in Ukraine since it became independent demonstrate, the path to democracy in post-communist countries is a difficult one filled with dangers, especially if domestic problems are exacerbated by other countries. To survive, Ukraine needs long-term economic assistance and targeted military aid that can augment the fighting capabilities of the Ukrainian military. Third, the Ukrainian crisis highlights 
the precarious security of the Baltic states and their extreme vulnerability to Russian pressure and potential military action. The failure of the West to confront Russia more directly in Ukraine has emboldened Moscow to take provocative actions along the other parts of its periphery. Fourth, new thinking is needed on sanctions. Fifth, the assumption that post-communist Russia has become a responsible member of the international community, seeking to work within the framework of existing international institutions and the rule of law has proven to be unfounded. Last, there is no substitute for an engaged American policy to exercise robust leadership. Let me close by briefly elaborating, very briefly, on economic sanctions and military assistance to Ukraine. Ukraine's President Poroshenko has requested military aid and training from the West. Specifically, he's requested anti-tank weaponry, anti-battery radar systems, and other types of defensive military equipment. We must act upon this request. But we must also extend and expand economic sanctions, which will impose a heightened cost for Russia's aggressive actions. Despite Moscow's far-reaching strategic aspirations, Russia is operating from a weak posture. The Russian economy continues to shrink. Russia's greatest vulnerability may be its refineries. While Russia is one of the world's top energy producers, its refining facilities are antiquated, have no spare capacity, and must be refurbished with Western spare parts on a continuous basis. Much of this equipment is US, of US origin. If Congress were to enact statutory sanctions, placing an embargo on exports to Russia of refinery pumps, compressors, control equipment, and catalytic agents, it would cause widespread shortages of refined products, putting tremendous pressure on uh, uh, Russia's civ civilian economy and Moscow's ability to carry out military operations. In sum, the most effective strategy is to provide military, economic, and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine in the long term. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Mr. Bond, sir, Ambassador. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, yeah. I met several of you gentlemen uh, and lady uh, in Kyiv uh, over the past 17 months when I was working on coordinating and expanding our assistance program in, mm -hmm. in uh, Kyiv. Uh, my work focused on the technical and humanitarian aspects of, of the assistance program, though an important security component was built up over those months as well. I'm going to make a few comments about the economic transition in Ukraine. Um, those comments are informed by my experience in Eastern Europe, in Prague for the Velvet Revolution, and then working in Washington on the support for East European Democracy Act, implementing it. And then later, uh, my experience in Moscow, where we saw a failed economic transition. And what I have to say now, I, I want to be clear, is not criticism and should not be viewed as criticism, but it is a hard-headed approach of what needs to be done if we want to see the Ukraine, Ukraine develop a functioning market economy. Um, first off, and I want to be clear about this, uh, the current Kiev government is the most reform-minded and technically the most competent team Ukraine's had since uh, post-Soviet times. But I'm afraid its, uh, its goals are not ambitious enough and they're not radical enough. And the process of reform, as others have said, is only just beginning in Ukraine. There have been important successes. Raising energy tariffs and the other IMF conditions have been met. The police reform, which was discussed, is a big success, and now it's being re repeated in many cities. And we've had agreement on debt restructuring. But the reformers are facing serious resistance in a number of key areas, including the fight against corruption. The prosecutor general's office should be ground zero for that fight. Uh, unfortunately, the 
Prosecutor General's Office has not completed a, a criminal investigation or criminal prosecution of any senior level figure from the Yunukovych era. We have uh, Department of Justice, FBI uh, advisors working with reformers inside the PGO, Prosecutor General's Office. They are being resisted and fought by uh, old thinkers and old timers in that bureau, and they need the support of senior members of the government if they're to succeed. A new anti-corruption bureau, which was discussed and which is being formed, will rely on the PGO's office for any corruption prosecutions. And uh, the PGO's office is frankly just not doing its, its job right now. In the health ministry, uh, there are efforts to reform the procurement system. Um, uh, that's essential because the procurement system was deeply corrupt and resulted in a, uh, a catastrophically low level of vaccinations of uh, Ukrainian youth. Uh, and we've just seen the first signs of uh, of polio outbreaks in Western Ukraine. Um, in some areas, in fact, privatization and deregulation, for example, reforms are only just beginning. Uh, my bottom line is what the Ukrainian economy basically needs is a fundamental liberalization and deregulation to include broad privatization of more than 2,200 state-owned enterprises. Um, what economists sometimes refer to as the factors, uh, mar the factor markets of production for land, labor, and capital just are not functioning in Ukraine. If you're an SME owner or an entrepreneur, you find it very difficult to buy real estate. You can't get, a, uh, you can't get capital or a loan from a bank. Uh, there are hiring practices that make it very difficult for you to set up your business. Um, so that's, that's a key problem. Um, I think also, again, from my experience in Eastern Europe, it's important for macroeconomic policies to be coordinated and focused. Uh, and some ministries are doing outstanding work, but there's no central figure in the government who's pulling all of those pieces together for a comprehensive macroeconomic strategy. Uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, usually, uh, the successful transitions uh, were led by a deputy prime minister who usually was double-headed as the finance minister. I'm thinking of Lecek Balcerowicz in Poland, Václav Klaus in Prague. There's no figure like that in uh, Ukraine. And I think the prime minister and the president need to agree and empower such an individual to lead the whole process of market reforms. Um, there's a, a, a big part of the problem is a lack of understanding on the part of the general public, uh, a lack of communication by political leaders on what a market economy is and how it works. Uh, curiously, there's a poll IRI conducted um, that shows two-thirds of the citizens of the country believe the government should be providing, supplying jobs and investment. Less than 10% understand that it should be the private sector. Uh, in Eastern Europe, focusing on developing the private sector was key to the success of the transitions. Uh, Poland, for example, focused on SME creation, and that resulted in investment, growth, and jobs. The GOU is, seems to be, the government of Ukraine seems to be focused on meeting the conditions required by the IMF, and that's important, it's essential, it's how you're going to get the money to pay the bills but it's not a substitute for a growth strategy that gets out in front of that IMF-demanded reform curve to get things moving in the, in the broader economy. Um, energy is a perfect example of this. They've raised the tariffs as, as required by the IMF, but have not done anything to fundamentally reform the Ministry of Energy or the energy sector itself, which is not really a market. It's a, a battleground of competing oligarchic interests. Uh, this point was made at a recent Ukraine Foundation uh, conference discussion uh, of the energy situation. Um, I have more to say on, on, on the question of assistance. Um, 
but we do need assistance so that we can work with, refor with reformers to build institutions, fight corruption, and create conditions for growth. And that's gonna require a long-term assistance strategy uh, with our partners, other donors, and a commitment from Congress to multi-year funding and additional resources. Visiting con congressional delegations, including your members of your committee have repeatedly told us that they are ready to consider substantial expansion of assistance to Ukraine uh, and that they understand its importance. Um, Ukraine's success is essential for the wider security of Europe and fulfilling the vision of a continent of a whole free and at peace. Now, if we were able to get substantial new resources, <laughs> I have some ideas about how they could be used. Um, we've been trying to direct the resources we do have to make more of an impact on, on reforms in Ukraine already. One thing I think we need to do is consider new forms of macroeconomic support. Uh, the loan guarantees that we're providing are very costly in terms of our assistance dollars. They also place a very heavy sovereign debt burden on Ukraine itself. Uh, we can look to the SEED program for ideas about what can be done uh, differently. Uh, but I think with more macroeconomic support, we, we would create a cushion that would allow Ukrainian reformers to be more radical. I'll, I have some other ideas, but I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. I welcome your questions. Thank you very much, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you both for your testimony. Uh, Ambassador Dobrynski, uh, your testimony is more forward-leaning uh, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, the, uh, and by that I mean Ambassador Bond is focused on the economics, so you, you had a whole different uh, uh, set of agendas. Uh, different than what we heard uh, from Secretary Newland from, from my perspective, and you uh, mentioned the Atlantic Council. So let me ask you about <clears throat> a couple of those things. Number one is, as it relates to sanctions, uh, is there a, <clears throat> a set of ideas that uh, you all have? Is it, is it about being prepared? If Minsk doesn't move forward, uh, fully uh, enforced, uh, is it before that? Is it proactive? Well, what, what are you thinking about in that regard? Earlier when you posed the question that you did to the Assistant Secretary, it certainly caught my attention because uh, here <laughs> the thinking is that the sanctions that had been imposed by the administration, although they've had an effect, the sanctions imposed on Russia, although they've had an uh, impact, that we are witnessing that the costs are not that great to deter Russia from what it is doing, and not just in Europe, but also as we're seeing in Syria. And I think there's a concern, certainly on the continent of Europe, about uh, uh, a next move. So to answer your question, it's now and after. Mm. It's actually looking at now what we should be doing mm. because Many of us believe that we're not operating and having discussions from a position of strength. That these discussions that we are having with Russia, uh, we, uh, we're, we're, we're not uh, having the kind of influence and impact that we should. Mm -hmm. There's been no deterrent from Russia, at least as I can see, in terms of their actions. So it is now mm -hmm. and beyond. Now let me <clears throat> ask you, I've personally been an advocate as I think the majority of this committee has, of providing lethal weapons uh, to the Ukrainians um, 
lethal defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. It's great to provide night uh, vision goggles so that you can see your enemy coming, but if you can't stop it, it doesn't do you very good to see them coming. So the response to that is, well, that would only potentially create a greater provocation by Russia. It doesn't seem that Russia has needed much provocation uh, to use its military might so far, Crimea, Eastern Ukraine, now Syria. So I doubt provocation is really an answer. Do you, uh, but it seems to me that the existence of Ukraine's ability to defend itself and up the cost uh, to Putin uh, is part of an equation to try to both deter him from doing anything more, maybe to get the implementation of Minsk as we would like to see. Do you support that view? Uh, first, if, if I may, sure. I was here in Congress when Poroshenko delivered his remarks before the joint session and said to the United States, thank you for the blankets, but blankets will not win wars. Mm -hmm. Ukraine needs military aid and assistance to be able to defend its, its territory and to push back against these Russia-backed separatists, or terrorists as the Ukrainians called them, and also to push back against Moscow. Our support militarily not only is it, would be in response to the request from Ukraine, but significantly, I think it sends a very important and clear signal in terms of our concern about what is happening on the ground there. We were one of the signatories of the 1994 Budapest Accords. We do have some obligation here. And in that context, I think that since Ukrainians are saying, please help us, let us defend ourselves, it's not only a military issue, A, but for them, for their self-defense, B, I don't buy the argument of the escalation and the reason why Putin is very concerned about uh, 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 soldiers, Russian soldiers dying. Uh, you know that Nemtsov was um, murdered. He was going to release, and he did release, a documentary. The Atlantic Council has a report called Hiding in Plain Sight, which documents and details the scale and scope of Russian involvement in Ukraine. So there's that, and then the third is just the political dimension here of what we're about uh, and what we stand for, I think not moving on that military front uh, sends a very bad signal indeed. Mm -hmm. The Budapest Agreement where we gave Ukraine security assurances uh, if they gave up their nuclear weapons that we would uh, protect their territorial integrity. It hasn't worked out too well for them. That is correct. In fact, interestingly enough, when uh, Russia uh, not only illegally annexed uh, Crimea, but invaded Ukraine, meaning the Eastern Territory. Uh, I remember reading in Japanese press about their concern about extended deterrence. This also has ramifications for a nuclear proliferation um, in terms of the abrogation by Moscow of, that, uh, of those accords. Ambassador it's not Bonner. just about Ukraine. Sorry. Ambassador Bonner, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, your testimony has a lot of uh, golden nuggets in there about things we can be doing and should be considering as uh, we help Ukraine achieve uh, an economy that can grow. But as a prerequisite to that or as a condition of success, how can they ultimately, if, if they did every reform uh, that we could envision, uh, 
can they really ultimately succeed when uh, part of the most uh, uh, robust economic part of the country, which is the eastern part, which the head of the IMF said was about 20% of their GDP, if that ends up being gone, just for argument's sakes, how successful can they be? If you can put your microphone. I think there's no question that they can be very successful. Mm -hmm. That eastern part is the old industrial base of the economy. So if it's, it's totally it's, gone. It's, it's a rust belt. Okay. Some, have, some uh, investors there, domestic investors, have upgraded those industries. Mm -hmm. But their future is in the knowledge economy. It's in agriculture. Uh, it's in energy efficiency, uh, information technology. They have the base in the rest of Ukraine to succeed. So they can object, so for, for all intents and purposes, not that they want to, but you're suggesting they could lose that 20% and, and I'm, still I'm, be successful. Yes, I, I think the, the, the country could be economically successful. Of mm -hmm. course, no one wants to see them lose the Donbass and the eastern parts of the country that are now occupied. Mm -hmm. It creates, being occupied, not being under the control of Ukraine means less tax revenue, less of a base to support the conflict that they need to support, uh, less money to finance some reforms. But an argument I tried to make was that deregulation and liberalization may not actually be very costly. It's removing regulation. It's removing sources of corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, and you hear it again and again from Ukrainian business people when you talk to them. I made one very final question, Mr. Chairman. So investment, investors, right. external investors. So they see what's happening in eastern Ukraine and they say to themselves, uh, I don't know how far this is gonna go, I don't know uh, what it's going to create as a ripple effect across the country. Does it undermine the opportunity to bring investment or, or is your view that the reforms is what undermines investment? Reforms, systemic reforms are what are undermining investment, particularly substantial strategic investors who might be interested in some of those state-owned enterprises that need to be privatized. Mm -hmm. There's a plant, the Odessa Portside plant uh, which is the largest fertilizer factory in uh, Europe. Uh, that is a state-owned enterprise which could be privatized if it was done correctly, transparently, with due diligence and the proper paperwork. It would attract strategic European and American investors. Um, and there are other, other examples of that throughout the economy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Ambassador Bond, uh, I happen to agree with the comments of uh, the other ambassador relative to our support of them defensively and in other ways, intelligence, which we've been just incredibly remiss in not sharing. Do you share those thoughts uh, relative to, uh, again, defensive lethal weaponry? I know we're at a little different stage of the right. Uh, evolution right now, but... Uh, As I said, that, that wasn't my lane in the embassy, but I personally believed that lethal defensive weapons should be considered for Ukraine. We've seen the Minsk agreement signed when the body counts of fallen Russian soldiers has gone sharply up. Uh, I think it will create a deterrent. It will create a cost that Putin doesn't see right now. As far as the details of the Minsk II agreement relative to our sanctions relief for Russia, um, we put sanctions in place because of what they had done in eastern Ukraine, and we also had sanctions relative to Crimea. Have you gone through those and, and looked at those and feel there's a balance, an appropriate balance there regarding the uh, relief that is being given to them by simply uh, 
uh, agreeing to an accord after they've come in and destabilized the country the way they have? Senator, I have not. I have not. That, again, was not part of my brief when I was working at the embassy. My small part of following Minsk were the humanitarian aspects, yeah. uh, where there's a working group that's supposed to be finding ways to get humanitarian assistance into the conflict area for civilians. Uh, it hasn't been very successful. Uh, but, you know, we talk about the fight in the East and we talk about the reform fight in Kyiv against cor corruption and everything else. There's a third struggle going on uh, on the humanitarian front where they, as, uh, as Ambassador Dobriansky said, they've got 1.5 million uh, displaced persons in the country, another million fled outside as refugees, and millions of other people who are trapped in this area of conflict and that we cannot get humanitarian supplies into. Uh, to support them, particularly with the onset of a second winter for these people. Yeah. Ambassador Dobryhansky, have you, have you seen those, have you examined the relief that is going to be given to Russia for somewhat fully implementing Minsk? Uh, uh, no, I cannot say that I have studied that in detail, but I will make two comments relative to the Minsk um, Accords. Uh, I would have liked to have seen the United States at that table quite frankly, and as part of the uh, uh, discussion taking place. I think uh, our European allies, and I think Germany, France, they're working very hard, but I think the United States should be engaged there. We have a stake in the future of Europe. We are part of the transatlantic community. Um, secondly, I would just say that hearing Ukrainian officials speak about what is in Minsk, I think there is concern about certain interpretations the interpretation that when Russia, President Putin, states very clearly his aspiration to see a fed federalism in Ukraine, the Ukrainians use the term decentralization. So my concern is, from the political side, is particularly what does it mean in terms of what will unfold, and the kind of actual influence that is already existing on the ground that Russia has in, uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine. And as Ambassador Bond pointed out, even just from the humanitarian side, OSCE is not able to uh, bring in assistance, no less to be able to evaluate the uh, political situation on the ground there. What's your sense, I, I know there's no way for you to fully know, but what is your sense of the role that Syria is playing relative to Russia's recent uh, behavior in, in Ukraine? Well, I'll start with this, and if I may go back to the statement or question posed by Senator Menendez about our different testimonies. Actually, I think our testimonies are very complementary in a way, because you got into a lot of the detail of which I agree with what you said. I wanted to impart to you why Ukraine matters to us, and giving aid uh, of, of different, uh, different, kinds, uh, different kinds of aid to Ukraine. It relates to Syria, and that is that uh, uh, Putin's vision and his long-term goals and intentions, I think, have been very clearly stated. Started in uh, the Munich Security Conference in 2007, when he stated very clearly that he rejected the international legal order and would make and undertake steps to bring about a change. In the case of Syria, I see what's happening in Syria as threefold. First, to bolster Assad or a successor to Assad because they have a stake in Syria in that territory. Secondly, marginalizing the United States and 
our role and stake in that region. And thirdly, I think very clearly to divert attention from the aggression in Ukraine, um, uh, to uh, undertake action which would force other countries, in particular Europe, to have to engage with them. And it puts the negotiations and the discussion in Ukraine in a very different context as a result of that. I see all of these issues as interrelated. And what really does matter here and what hasn't changed, despite in these last weeks uh, maybe a, a slowdown in fighting or uh, elimination of you know, uh, or evidence of fighting uh, in eastern Ukraine, the fact is that Putin's goals and objectives haven't changed here. What, what from your standpoint, the, the NATO alliance, I know we had some, we had a leader of one of the Baltic countries in here recently, and the overflies and things that are taking place obviously are disconcerting. I know that, you know, Article 5 is being looked at, and because of hybrid warfare, what does it mean uh, for another country to be attacked? What is the definition of that? How do we come to, do we come to their aid if it's over cyber, if it's over something else? I, I, uh, I have been increasingly concerned about our friends in Europe and their lack of commitment. I mean, let's face it again, uh, Germany, we have numbers of NATO bases and others in Germany, and yet they don't come close to meeting their, their NATO commitments financially. And by the way, why should they? I mean, they, they're so reinforced. How are the Eastern, Eastern European countries feeling about Western Europeans' commitment uh, towards that region and towards real pushback relative to Russia? I think that there are several factors that are on the table relative to NATO. First is, is NATO is being challenged by, by Putin in terms of, uh, of not only in area, but also out of area. Secondly, I think you asked the question, how does the East feel about the West? President Duda, the new president of Poland, made it very clear in his, uh, 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 when he became president in his inaugural speech, that one of the steps that he would undertake is when the Warsaw NATO, excuse me, the, yes, the NATO summit that will be held in Warsaw in 2016 will be held, that uh, forward permanent deployment of NATO troops would be part of the agenda, that they were going to advance that. I am a proponent of that. I think that we have demonstrated previously, certainly to the Russians and with Gorbachev, when Gorbachev himself talked about Europe whole and free, that this was part of our arrangement. But at this time, we're witnessing an aggression and terms and circumstances have changed. So very specifically, the East European countries are acting on their words. They want to see permanent forward deployment of NATO troops on Polish territory in the Balkans. Thirdly, as with regard to the budget, uh, I, you raise a fair point. It's something that has concerned the United States. We'd like to see greater burden sharing. A number of the countries since the aggression in Ukraine have enhanced their budgets, but, but not, not, not all. And toward that end, it has to be a shared responsibility. There can't be complacency. There has to be a strategy as well here which I think is lacking. 
Well, listen, thank you both. Do you have any further questions? I know we started late and you witnessed something that's rare in this committee. Um, but uh, one of the reasons we don't give some of the deputy secretaries and undersecretaries uh, a difficult time, uh, candidly, uh, you know, many of us are disappointed about what has and hasn't happened in Ukraine. We feel like it's been half-hearted support. Um, it's difficult to give an undersecretary uh, a hard time when you're not even sure, uh, you know, the policies are emanating from someone else. Um, and uh, I think in some cases it's somewhat difficult for uh, them to really uh, testify in a strong manner about what's happening. So that's what you may have witnessed in the, with the last uh, uh, witness. Uh, we thank you for being here today and sharing your insights. I know we'll be following up. There'll be questions. The record will remain without uh, objection. Uh, the record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow. And uh, if you would uh, answer expeditiously those questions, we'd appreciate it. Thank you both for your service to our country, uh, for being here today. And with that, the meeting is adjourned.